optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, to figure out how they do what they do, and to dig into the details that you can apply to your own life. And this episode, we have a treat. We do not have an entertainer. We do not have an actor. We do not have a military strategist. We have a performance specialist, specifically athletic performance. And Ryan Flaherty, on Instagram, at Ryan Flaherty one the number one, was introduced to me by Dr. Peter Atia. And those of you who have heard my episodes with Peter Atia know that many good things come from Peter. This is no different. Uh, Ryan Flaherty is the Senior Director of Performance at Nike. Prior to holding that position, Ryan was the founder and president of Prolific Athletes, LLC, a sports performance facility in San Diego, California, where he trained some of the world's best athletes. His clients include, you may have recognized or heard of these names, Serena Williams, Russell Wilson, the Arizona Cardinals, Marcus Mariota, Jameis Winston, and hundreds of other professional athletes. And while He's perhaps best known for dramatically improving his athletes. 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 That's the right word. Speed. More and more 
athletes and coaches seek Ryan out for his training and guidance on injury prevention. And we dig really deeply into that in this episode. Many of his clients have made remarkable recoveries from injuries, and several NFL teams and European soccer clubs have sought out his methodology to implement into their own training programming. Ryan developed an algorithm called a force number that is based on the trap bar deadlift, also called the hex bar deadlift, and body weight to predict speed, such as the 40-yard dash. This was a really fun interview. We got into the weeds. We got very, very nerdy. If you enjoyed, for instance, the Pavel Tatsulin episodes, the Charles Poliquin episodes, Dominic D'Agostino, or Peter Atia, then uh, you are going to love this one. It takes us a few minutes, as it almost always does, to warm up. That's a limbering up round, and then we get into all sorts of stuff. We talk about exercises for reducing injury potential. We talk about the uh, force number and exactly how he uses the trap bar deadlift. What do exact workouts look like? Sets and reps, rest intervals. Lay it out, start to finish from warm up. What does one of these workouts look like? We talk about glued meat exercises. Perhaps you saw some in Tools of Titans in Peter Tia's profile. That was directly from Ryan and variations. We get into all sorts of nitty-gritty details, uh, how he helped Meb Keflesky, I think it is, train for his stunning Boston Marathon victory. How does he go from sprinting to long-distance running? How does he predict which athletes are going to get injured? Uh, so whether you are trying to become a better athlete, you are trying to become less injured or more resilient in any type of training, uh, or maybe if you're a bookie looking to bet on different teams and athletes or bet short certain teams that are going to get injured, uh, there is something for everyone. So please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Flaherty, the savant of speed. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I have been hoping to connect for quite a few months now, and we've had an <laughs> a few actors behind the scene trying to connect us <laughs> I know. for a few months. And here we are. So I'm super stoked to dig in. And I thought we could just start with some basics. So you are very well known for saying that speed is teachable, coachable, but almost everyone out there says it is not. It is innate. So how did you come to that conclusion? Sure. I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think when I was, when I was a young kid, kind of a funny story, but when I was young, I was... Uh, playing baseball and, um, both my parents were athletic and, and, um, you know, so they kind of knew some things about sports and I, I was the, you know, hit it. I was at bat, I hit a line drive to center field and I got thrown out at first base. And, uh, I, I can remember my dad yelling, unhitch the trailer as I was running, I was running so slow basically, uh, which is not a good thing for a young kid to hear from his dad, um, uh, in third grade. But, um, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was really a really slow kid uh, when I was young. Um, I grew fast and, and just couldn't develop speed. Uh, all the kids were faster than me in my class and my teams. And so my mom actually put me into track and field when I was young and, uh, about fourth grade. And, and by the time I was in fifth, sixth grade, I was the fastest kid in my school. Um, and, and what a lot of that was from was just me understanding and learning how to run properly. And so once I did that, it kind of opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, obviously it was not something I was born with in any way. Um, but it's something that was learned and it was a skill that I really put a lot of time into understanding and learning. And, you know, as I've gotten older and I've, I've, I've been in the, the sports performance, you know, training field for a long time. Um, one of the things that, um, I think is, you know, kind of funny to me is I, I point out to a lot of people and parents is that, you know, if you can imagine if every sport played was in the, in the swimming pool, one of the first things most kids would do would be learn how to swim. And yet every single sport on ground is requires running. And yet we don't teach kids how to run. 
it's just kind of like throw them into the sport and they'll figure it out. But um, that's one of the big things I think I've been trying to help educate people on is that the one for, the for most important thing you can do for your child is just teach them how to run properly and then every other sport will kind of come easily to them. And I think, um, you know, over the years of, of more and more research putting into this, I've, I've, I've come to realize quickly through, you know, just the research is that uh, speed is actually a skill you can learn and it's something you can train also. And it, I mean, it seems to me like you have, just as you said, I didn't learn to swim. Speaking as someone who's extremely terrified of swimming and for a host of reasons, didn't learn to swim properly until early thirties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is, it is incredible that anything on land that is dependent in part, whether it's NFL combine and you're doing something like a shuttle run. I mean, the difference between first place and say third, fourth, or also ran is highly dependent on, on the technique, number one, but also certain attributes that you can develop. And I'd, I'd love for you to share with us perhaps some of the experiments that uh, you did at USA Track to figure out how to better coach speed. Yeah, absolutely. So what I ended up taking, I, I needed a sample size that, would, that, that, that are all like similar skill level and talent level. And so um, I took 30 you know, Olympic A standard sprinters um, and ran them on force plate treadmills. And so the Olympic A standard spinners are spinners that have hit the, the required marks to, to qualify for the Olympics. Now in the United States, it's different just because we're, we're, at, we're such a high level that you, you have to be much better than, than just the standard, but in other countries and a lot of other countries, if you hit the standard you're in. Um, and so I took, I took Olympic A standard sprinters and I test them on a force plate treadmill. And, and what I quickly realized was it wasn't about how much force they were creating or how great their technique was. Um, it wasn't really until I realized that, uh, and, and you, I think, I know you're familiar with the study that was done by Dr. Peter Wayand, um, which is mass specific force is, is kind of king. It's, it's, it's more than anything. It's how much force you can create over what your body mass is. So, uh, to use it as an example, it'd be like, if I told you go run a hundred meter dash as fast as you could with a 50 pound weight vest on and I, you know, and recorded your time and then we took it off and then we recorded your time, you'd be much faster without the 50 pound weight vest on. Well, inversely, if you were just to increase somebody's lower body strength by 50 pounds without adding a single pound of lean muscle mass, you'd also have the same results. Um, with improving their times based on them improving their lower body strength to, um, to mass ratio. And so quickly, I, I, you know, through that, the study of all the athletes, I realized, okay, so, so major, majority of what it comes down to for sprinters or for people to be fast is they have a, an insane amount of strength over what their body mass is. So an incredible ratio between that strength to weight ratio. Um, and so with every athlete I train now, whether it's Serena Williams on the tennis court or, or you know, a football player that's going into the NFL combine, um, it's, it's about teaching them how to improve that strength, strength to weight ratio without increasing any lean muscle mass. So, um, I think that's, that's the key. And then, and then secondarily that, you know, mechanics play a part in, um, part of those mechanics. If you imagine, uh, when you run, when you watch an athlete run from the side, their foot in, in their swing phase, when they're running, looks like it make, it's making a circle. Well, if, if you have a big circle, a big wheel that would co cover a larger distance than a smaller wheel wheel. And so what I try to do is help them understand how to make larger wheels with their feet in order for them to cover more ground, which increases their stride length, which in turn helps them run faster times. Like to give you an example, Usain Bolt takes 42 steps to run a hundred meter dash. Next fastest guy in the world takes 44. And so ultimately what you're trying to do in improving somebody's speed is helping them limit the amount of steps they take um, to run whatever particular distance they're going, whether it's a, a marathon or it's a hundred meter dash. Which is also uh, in some respects, very comparable to, Olympic swimming, right? I mean, you look at the sort of stride length and efficiency of top swimmers, and there's a, there's a direct 
parallel. Mm-hmm. It, just a just a side note, I guess, which I've always wondered. You hear a lot, say, in certain running communities uh, about striking with the midfoot and so on. Uh, how much attention do you pay to the uh, the impact point on the foot when you're trying to say increase the size of that wheel does that naturally lead to more uh, impact closer to the heel or uh, is that is that something that has been overemphasized? In no, I, I don't think it's been overemphasized as much as it as it is the placement underneath the pelvis. So I think more than anything, it's kind of like where the foot's striking in, in relation to the center of mass is most important. So when you're looking at somebody who's with a midfoot strike, so uh, I do focus on midfoot strike, but more than anything, I focus on where that midfoot strike is occurring, whether it's occurring, you know, out, you know, millimeters in front of the pelvis or directly under the pelvis or slightly behind. Uh, the goal is to get it as underneath the pelvis as possible. So you want the foot midfoot strike to happen under the pelvis, which is more of what I focus on um, in that big circle and the mechanic, the teaching of the mechanics with making that heel, you know, if you can imagine the heel stepping over your opposite knee when you sprint um, is the goal. And so, and then and, and on gra- upon ground contact and the landing phase, you want the foot to be as directly under the pelvis as possible. And for, for sprinters, do you, how much do you think about stride, rate. Uh, people have read Born to Run. There are many books and they talk about, well, you should go from, say, 90 and aim for 180. And you should use some type of metronome or, or auditory feedback so that you're increasing your um, your steps, uh, footfalls per minute effectively. Mm-hmm. Well, h- how do you think about that in the context of what you do, if you, if you do at all? Yeah, totally. No, I, I absolutely do. And I think I think the biggest thing is it's again, everything I'm gonna talk about today, it's all about specificity. As you know, like once if you're training for performance and for a particular sport performance, then you're gonna train a very particular way that we're focused on on you know the minutia of, of those things that that will best help that person perform better. However, when you're when you're transitioning into more of like a you know a static runner or just in terms of training for health, a lot of what I'm gonna say may, may not always apply, but it could can apply in, in certain ways. And so I think uh, with that being said, I think you know, the way I look at it is stride length and stride frequency for the majority of the time are products of how much force you create with the ground of what your body weight is. So your mass specific force, your stride rate, stride rate and, and length is actually a product of that. So more than anything, instead of focusing on that, I'm focusing on, 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 on one hand, the mechanics of sprinting, but I'm also focused on if I know if I can improve strength to weight ratio, uh, in the weight room, which I think we can get into a little bit more depth later, is I know for a fact that stride length and stride frequency will also improve. Those are byproducts. Exactly. And so instead of focusing on one or the other, I just focus on the one that affects the other. So you know, let's – oh, I'm sorry. I'm so excited no, no, to jump into into this. I'm oh, getting, no, no, getting no, a little overzealous. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no worries. And I think that's the biggest thing <laughs> of all, all the research I've done even in, in the weight room is – I'm looking at the exercises that can have the greatest effect in in a multitude of ways, not just in one specific area. So I think because athletes, just like human beings, have have a limit in the amount of time they have in a day, they don't want to. They can't, and 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 trainers can't spend the, the amount of time in the weight room that, that most people think they they can because they have all these other things going on, you know. And so it's it's what can I get the most bang for my buck to improve the most amount of things in the shortest period of time is what I do with elite level athletes, just like I would with. CEOs or recommended for, you know, other people in terms of that don't have the time to spend two hours in a gym. Um, you want to get the most bang for your buck. And so I've really focused on researching exercises that give you that in order for, um, them to get the greatest improvement. Could you, and this might be a good place you tell me to segue, or it's not really a segue because it's all very related, uh, force number. Can you talk about what that is? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, so when I was studying the speed and, and sprinters with USA track and field, what I, what I found quickly was that once the, once the sprinters hit a certain, um, distance right around 30 to 40 meters, they actually maintained and held the exact same split for the rest of the race. Uh, it was actually the athletes who ran the fast times, like the Usain Bolts of the world were actually the ones who were slowing down the least. But really when you looked at their 10 meter splits, it was almost identical all the way through to the finish. Um, and so what I, what I, um, what I came to realize quickly was that there was a correlation there between who could hold their top end speed the longest and who was winning the race. And so, um, when I was looking at that, I, and, and then, then inversely was looking at the athletes and, and measuring their mass specific force in the force plate treadmill. What I realized quickly was, okay, there's relation to the athletes who have the high strength to weight ratio or the, or the force to uh, mass specific force, uh, force to mass ratio on the treadmill that also are covering the same, uh, you know, lowest splits in their 10 meter, the 10, their flying tens in, in the hundred meter dash that all of the athletes came to me after that and were like, this is awesome. This is great. You know, but like, Hey, how do we have, how do we improve this? And it was, it was kind of a light bulb that went on for me really quickly was that I think what most researchers, scientists spend time looking into is diagnostics and assessments. But what most people really need is, is ways to improve it. So unless you come with a diagnostic that you can actually show them improvement and show them how to improve it, they're almost meaningless. Um, and so I, I, what I, what I spent the next five years doing was spending time in the weight room and, 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 and correlating the data between every exercise. So I tested the same athletes in the weight room on with squat, power clean, hand clean, front squat, leg press, leg extension, um, RDL, everything you can think of under the sun and, and the, and measured their one rep max in those exercises in their body and their body mass and compared that to the force plate treadmill study. And, and it didn't correlate until I actually got to the hex bar deadlift. Which is also called the trap bar deadlift yeah, for some yeah. folks out there. Yep. Exactly. It's a circular bar that you step into with the handles on the side of the body instead of the bar being in front. Right. And then when I, when I started testing the same athletes with the hex bar deadlift or the trap bar deadlift max in their body weight, it actually directly correlated to the force plate treadmill study um, at their max velocity and top speed. And so I realized quickly, okay, if this is the order in which they ran their 100-meter dash time in by their hex bar deadlift max and body weight, and I improve their hex bar deadlift max without increasing body weight, would I see the same improvement in their speed? And over you know the past seven years of testing that, I have. If you have a not totally sedentary, but former competitive athlete who would like to use a protocol to improve this relative strength that we've been talking about, sort of pound per pound strength output using the trap bar uh, deadlift or hex bar, Mm-hmm. What, what, what might the protocol look like? You know, for most people, I, I would, I would generally start them with, with somewhat of a hypertrophy or strength phase for a while, just to get them used to the lift and just get, you know, get their lower back strong enough to be able to get to the power phases. What would that first hypertrophy phase look like? Yeah. So I would go, I mean, I would do probably three to four sets of eight of your 65% of your max for, um, one to two weeks. And then I would, I would, I would shift up 5% uh, every week leading up to about 85, 90% where I would go for reps of five or three. So based on the percentage of your, that you're lifting, um, so let's say it's 65%, you're going to be between six to eight range there. When you start to get 75, 80%, you want to be in the five to, to, to eight rep range. And then when you get above 85% to 95%, you want to be between two reps and five reps. So more than anything, what you're trying to do ultimately is with the amount of cross-sectional muscle fiber that your body currently has, you're trying to stress your nervous system, recruit the largest motor units possible. Um, and to do that, you have to lift heavy. You have to lift heavy weights in order to recruit the larger motor units because um, 
ultimately what most people do when they exercise and they lift weights is that they're, they're, they're stressing their body eccentrically, isometric, concentrically, and they're adding lean muscle mass. They're also recruiting motor units, but they're also, but they're also adding lean muscle mass at the same rate. What, what we're trying to do, and the cool part about the hex bar deadlift is at the very top, when you, when you push away from the ground and you're in a standing position away from the ground, I actually am going to coach you guys to let go of the bar to drop it. So there's no eccentric movement in the, in, in the, in the exercise. So that way you don't tear sarcoma or add lean muscle mass. Um, and, and that, so you're stressing the nervous system to get stronger, recruit large motor units, but you're not actually tearing muscle fiber down and adding more muscle mass. Um, and so I would go every two weeks, I would just adjust 5%, um, and, and go up 5% for about four to eight reps for 65%. I would say four to six reps for like 70, 75%. Uh, four to five reps for 85 percent and then two to three reps for uh, 95 to 90 percent and just progress that way and everyone it's all relative so it doesn't mean everyone's going to lift a 500 pounds but but ultimately what you're trying to get to is an elite level football player like a four five 40 yard dash uh four four 40 yard dash would be a 3.2 times their body weight in their hex bar deadlift to run that time 3.2 times body weight. Yeah. And, and what I find is in, 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 in most like, you know, uh, healthy adults, they can, they can generally pull about, you know, anywhere from 2.2 to 2.6 times their body weight in the, in, in the, in a hex bar deadlift max. And what, what would be a, uh, a, a good objective if perhaps 3.2, uh, what would you, from the outset, if you said in a, in a year's time, I would like to get you to X times body weight. And does it differ for men or women or is it the same? No, actually, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, it's the, the same. I, the funny part is, is when I have like, so right now I'm training a lot of the top NFL uh, draft hopefuls, guys that just finished their college career. Um, and they come in the weight room, they'll see, you know, some of the female Olympic sprinters that I have training and the, the females are, who are 135 pounds are deadlifting 440 pounds. <laughs> and they'll walk in the first day and they'll hit 385 and it, it immediately humbles them to realize what have I been doing for the past four years of my life? Uh, because those gr- women over there are deadlifting a hundred pounds more than I am. Um, but it's pretty funny, but, but and they weigh it's, it's, exactly, 80 pounds less. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So no, no, I think, um, you know, I mean, I think reasonably over the course of, so, so here's your question to how, like, what could people get to over the course of a year? Yeah. Or what would your goal for someone who's reasonably fit? But by no means a <laughs> NCAA or sure. Olympic sprinter. No, no, I, I think over two is an is a great goal for somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Got it. And that is for one rep maximum or for for a given rec, rep range. Yeah. So I think oh, oh, over two times their body weight for uh, one rep maximum. So so to give you an example, let's say you're 100 pounds. Your goal is 200 pounds. Um, you know, for sets of five, you want to want to do. Um, 170 pounds for five that would be you know to get you to 200 as your max got would it be 85 percent of your max got it got it so 85 percent times it's five five reps got it and uh when when someone goes through the the muscle building general sort of hypertrophy uh base building once they've done that and they're working on the relative strength and the neural drive and the recruiting of these motor units, uh, and focusing on that, how many times a week are they doing a trap bar deadlift workout and what would such a workout look like? 
Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for the elite level athletes, generally I'll have them do it anywhere between one to two times a week. Uh, just depends on the amount of time I have with them, uh, for certain athletes like, you know, Serena Williams, when I work with her in the off season, I'll generally have her like in November or December. So I only have two months with her. So it's all kind of ease her into it and build up to two times a week towards the end. But if you have a long period of time, I would go one day a week and then alternate with another complex exercise. The, the second lower body day you do that week. Um, but I think two times a week and, and, you know, if you're starting a hypertrophy phase, I would say four times eight at 65%. Um, I like to pair it, you know, uh, with, with some sort of plyometric to continue to recruit those, you know, fast twitch, those larger motor units. Um, and then, and then from there I go into all like auxiliary single leg unilateral exercises to help, you know, fix imbalances or, or train the, the body in a way that, um, we're not working bilaterally besides that one hex bar deadlift. So I would do a hex bar deadlift with a plyo and then some a couple single leg exercises. I'd love to to dig into some details. So sure. let's just say, let's pretend since I need the um, the pat on the head, let's pretend like I'm an elite athlete, which I'm not. But let's just say I'm ready. <laughs> sure, I'm coming in to do this workout and I, my body's prepped for it. So I walk in. What does the warm up look like? And then when you get into the deadlifts, what are the sets and reps and rest intervals? Like, wa- walk me through the details of what that, and of course, it's highly individualized, but you, you can just make up some. Uh, we don't even need to get into the numbers. You could use percentages, but um, what would the, the warm up and the whole thing look like? Yeah. So generally I, I like to do some sort of a dynamic warm up. So some, some sort of movement warm up, not just getting on a treadmill or on a bike and, and, and running or, or biking. I like to, you know, do some walking lunges, some walking lunges with a twist, uh, some walking toe touches, some quad, you know, stretches, walking a skip, straight leg skips, that type of thing to kind of get some blood flow, um, and to help increase range of motion. You know, I have athletes start with a, on a foam roll, um, just to get again, blood flow, just to, to warm the muscles up a little bit. Um, uh, or a power plate, some sort of vibration plate, if you have that access to that and then a dynamic warm up, And then I would, I would then get into some, uh, activation. So I do some like light glute activation where you do some hip bridges or something like that, just to fire up the glutes. Um, and I do some quad activation where, which would be like some no weighted step ups. You do like two sets of eight of that by, by itself. And then you'd get into the hex bar deadlift warm up, which would be probably two to three sets at, you know, 50%, then 55 to 60 percent and then and then we were working how many working how many sets. repetitions for I those warm up sets five and six okay got it five five to six reps of 50 percent of your working weight correct yep mm-hmm. yep and and then once you get to 65 percent, you'd start your 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 uh your, your round and so how many minutes of rest between the warm-up sets i would say a minute okay maybe. got it pretty short yeah yeah, you're going under under a certain. And those uh, are full eccentric, a uh, concentric eccentric, or are you correct. drop. Okay, got it. So you're yes. not dropping the bar on these. I am not. No, got no. it. All right. Um, and and so and then once you get into the into the into the working set, then it would go concentric only, and I would go. Um, and obviously you'd get right back into position. So it's it's stand up, drop, stand up, drop, stand up, drop eight times in a row. Eight repetitions. Yep. With uh, what percentage of your one rep max? Sixty-five percent. Okay, got it. Okay. Yep. For the first two weeks, so it would be like in a hypertrophy phase, and then I would um, rest thirty seconds, and then I would pair that with like a level one plyometric, which would be like a basic squat jump, and I would do that five times. And more than anything in, in plyometrics, what I think I really want to kind of get across today is that the goal of doing plyometrics and training, and if for an, whether you're an athlete or just um, looking to improve. Uh, 
you know, your human performance. I think the biggest thing you're trying to improve in plyometrics is amortization phase, which is the transition between your eccentric and your concentric. And so to do that, you got to be close to or near hundred percent. So I'm big on in between your plyos resting to do it as hot, as hard and as fast as you possibly can to improve it. A lot of times I think you watch in training programming, you, you see where plyometrics start to become more of a, like a kind of a conditioning train you, you right. do it to a point where you're tired which is, is not going to help you improve what you're trying to improve which is amortization so um so i take rest in between so i would do like five squat jumps where you're trying to explode as high and as fast off the ground as possible and you're doing uh, that you're doing that in between these deadlift work sets yeah so the superset would be a, a hex bar deadlift at eight uh with drop and then 30 second rest then you do your five plyometrics got it um and you're trying to minimize ground contact in those plyos, or how are you? What what makes for a good rep in the plyometrics? Uh, more than anything, you're trying to you're trying to get to a depth that you, that you feel like is natural for you to jump as high as you can. So I'm just looking for somebody to, you know, in fight or flight, they're trying to jump as high as they possibly can. I, I don't really care what that looks like. Um, <laughs> you would not you would not like what mine no, looks no. like. <laughs> I think people get too caught up in people get too caught up. You know, in jumping, that stretch shortening cycle that occurs in our lower body when we jump happens in a window of 250 milliseconds, and when, when we try to perfect our, our technique and our squat jumps, we miss that window, right. which doesn't allow us to explode off the ground as fast as we possibly could. So it's more than anything, it's just get down and up as quick as you possibly can. Um, kind of as if you, you know, if it's fight or flight and you had to jump as high as you can to save somebody or something. So that's what I'm looking for. And then after that, with at 65%, I would go with so, somewhere around a two to three minute recovery in between each set. Right. Um, and, and once you get to 85 to 95%, I think like, as you wrote in your book prior, um, uh, is when you get to the heavier percentages, you you want to go to more of like a four to five minute recovery between right. a lot of the ATPCP, you know, phosphorus pools to regenerate to as close to hundred percent as possible. So, um, sorry, my dog's allergic. My, my dog hates phosphocreatine. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> no, she loves it. She loves freaking out. She uses a lot of phosphocreatine. <laughs> sorry about that. So yeah, as you get heavier, then you'd be taking longer rest intervals. And, and for those heavier weights, 85, 95%, are you still going to be, say, doing a, a work set, then taking, was it a 60-second rest, you said, before the plyos? Anywhere between 30 to 60 seconds, yeah. So more than anything, you're just looking to recover uh, to the point where you can jump at a, as close to a you know full effort as possible. Got it. Then do five, say, uh, five jumps, and then rest four to five minutes or so, some, somewhere in that range, and then do the next set. And you do that for, in the case of, the hypertrophy. Now, we, we were talking about four sets of, say, eight repetitions. When you get down into the lower rep ranges, where you're doing two to five reps at 85 to 95% mm -hmm. of one rep max, how many sets are you still doing three to four sets? Or are you doing a higher number of sets? No, I'm still doing three to four. Okay. Yep. So we finish the deadlifts. What happens after that? Then, then I would go. So, so all the athletes that I that I that I bring in, I, I do force plate testing with them. So I'll do a combination of jumps um, on the force plate to give me an idea of kind of their, the, you know, what their rate of force development looks like. You know, eccentrically, isometrically, concentrically, um, their peak force, a lot of different factors, and I'll take that into consideration when I'm building their programming uh, for the rest of the exercise. But to just give you an example, the rest of the workout will go somewhat um, unilateral. So I'll do it all single leg exercises. So the next uh, group of exercises could, could look like a Bulgarian dumbbell, Bulgarian split squat. But for this particular athlete, for you, let's say I wanted to focus on the eccentric tempo. So what I would do with you is I would have you go, you know, lower down for five seconds and then stand up as fast as you can for one second. And you would do three sets of six of that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I would then have you rest again, 30 seconds to 60 seconds. And then I would put you in, into a position where you're seated on a bench, um, sitting down with one foot, an inch off the ground, the other foot's on the ground and do a single legs, uh, concentric plyometric where you would stand up as, and jump as fast as you can from a seated single leg position. So imagine sitting in a chair, both feet are on the ground, lift the left leg off the ground by one inch, the right foot's on the ground, and you jump off the right and land on the right only. Um, and, and, and I actually have Olympic athletes that I do this with where they'll actually go from a seated, 90-degree seated position with one foot, and they'll jump onto a 56-inch box. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is um, remarkable. <laughs> yeah, and so, and so I think... I don't know if I could get off the toilet with uh, one, right? one leg oh. an inch off the ground. <laughs> no, trust me, me too. I, I, I don't demonstrate because I'm so embarrassed in front of some of them. I'm like, uh, no, you demonstrate. I'll bring your other athlete in. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so working on, on creating power from, from a static seated position, right. uh, very similar to how you would if you were sprinting. Um, and so... So that's a good example of the second um, uh, grouping of exercises that I would do uh, for this for this lower body day. Got it. And then after the isolateral exercises, then I would uh, go into some sort of stability exercise, proprioception exercise, where I would go like um, I call them step downs. But imagine standing on on top of a bench with one foot leg hanging off of the side, the the other foot's on top of the bench, and just lowering yourself slowly down for three seconds and back to standing for three seconds. And I would do some somewhere around one to two sets of twenty of those. Um, more than anything, I'm focused on um, now that we've burned through some larger muscle groups. Uh, in the lower body, I'm looking at now that some of the you know, stabilization uh, muscles, so VMO, glute med, um, and getting those fired up uh, with a, a step down. So it's a single leg step down, it's three seconds down, three seconds up, and you're just lowering yourself over the side of the bench and back up, um, standing on the edge of the bench. Imagine standing on the edge of a building, lowering one foot down three inches and back up. Got it. And uh, so VMO, that's what is it? Uh, vastus medialis obliquus. Yep. And uh, I guess. Th- one of the muscles when weak thought responsible for a fair number of injuries it would it would seem or at least I've, correct so yeah, I've i think i think the biggest thing with the, with the vmo that i look at though is more than anything imbalance so so i'm looking at uh asymmetry between the vmo and the, and the rest of the quad if if you look at and i have a great example of this with a lot of the nfl guys i'm training right now but when they come in from college is that they do so many core complex exercises that they, the, the larger muscle groups kind of dominate mm-hmm. and some of the smaller muscle stabilizers don't, don't get recruited as much as you'd like. And so you'll see like a guy with a huge quad and a 12 year old girl scout size BMO. Uh, <laughs> pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. And, and that for me is a big sign that, uh, a, you know, joint stability, instability, but number two is they're at high risk and high probability for, for lower extremity injury. And so I, that's something we'll, 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 you know, focus on a lot. Got it. Where could someone, uh, do you have any descriptions or any video or can you point someone to any resources if they wanted to learn how to do, because I want to learn this single leg step down in the way you're describing? Yeah. If I, if I don't already have a video up on YouTube, I will put one up there for you. And then also too, um, you know, I work with uh, Nike on, on their app that they have, which is the Nike Training Club. Not to plug or anything, but you uh, that, that has a ton of the exercises in it. Um, it's actually a great kind of resource for different exercises and things that I, I do. That's 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 in there, um, which you can pull from, and it's free. So so it's it's you know doesn't cost anything. What is your YouTube account? Uh, prolific athletes. Got it. All right, so we'll get on that by the time this comes out, guys. We'll we'll make sure something is up for you. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'll finish with seven way hips, which you, I think you know all about. You'll finish with what? 
seven way hips, which I think you can you can, describe it? <laughs> yes, I do know all about it because <laughs> I gave I gave the treacherous Peter Tia credit. Yeah. <laughs> so Dr. Peter Tia, mutual friend, of course, who uh, I described well, I, I shared a lot from Peter in Tools of Titans on pages 61, 62, 63. And these are glute mead, uh, at least glute mead primary exercises that you taught Peter. So that, that's the seven way hip. Yep, that's it. Yep, and I'd, I'd finish with that. And you do that how many times a week? We're only talking about the trap bar workouts, but let's say you're doing this once or twice a week. Is once a week enough for the seven way hip, or would you do it more? No, absolutely not. I, I mean, I think glute meads are one of the. Uh, I, I, one of the muscles I think for most people causing a lot of issue, they don't even know about, uh, especially when it comes to lower, lower back issues, um, and underdeveloped, uh, glute, glute mead. So I, I think one of the big things I would do is I would do at least two days a week of it, but I have two different variations of it that, uh, more and more research is coming to find that you actually want to train the glute mead, um, as much as you can in closed chain. So I have some exercises too. I will also post them on that YouTube account to show you um, that are closed chain, which means feet in contact with the ground uh, to, to, to focus on that, that glute meat. And it will do, so maybe like, you know, seven way hips one, one or two days a week and then, and then a closed chain glute meat exercise the other day of the week, um, okay. I think would be perfect. Great. Yeah, I know that uh, Amelia Boone, who also appears in Tools of Titans, so three-time world's toughest mutter champion, does quite a bit of the closed chain glute mead work. Uh, awesome. And I, th I think videos would be super helpful there. So we'll make sure that's up uh, as well. Now, you did say that glute mead, one of those muscles that when weak leads, can commonly lead to injury. What would you say for not necessarily professional athletes, but just athletes per se, right? Whether they're doing CrossFit or jujitsu or doesn't matter. Tennis, fill in the blank, right? Someone who is a recreational athlete. What are some of the most common culprits in terms of whether it's imbalances or weaknesses that uh, if, if you were to put down a short list, like the four or five that when neglected are most responsible for the injuries that you see? Would glute mead be in that top four or five list? Oh, absolutely. I think glute mead would be in top two. Okay. What's the other one in the top two? Ankle flexion. Ankle flexion, that is my nemesis right there. Yeah. So now by ankle flexion, you basically mean uh, sort of dorsiflexion and rain, plantar rain, and plantar flexion. Yeah, and e, and e, e version and inversion as well. So I think I think the biggest thing is major everything happens from the ground up. So um, unless you're a swimmer, obviously, there's that that's the one kind of caveat here is that is that you know with your feet in contact with the ground as an athlete or whether you're crossfitting or you're running or um, anything really at the end of the day where your feet are in contact with the ground, number one place you look is, 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 is feet and ankle flexion. So I think that's a big one, especially with the majority of athletes I see coming out, uh, ankle flexion is, is, is really poor. Um, and something we focus a ton on because ultimately everything's connected, the fascial body's connected. And so when there's an issue in the chain at some point, other, other pieces up the chain are going to overcompensate. So whether it be, you know, more, more tension and, and, um, uh, on the knee joint or it moves up into the pelvis, it's going to always start at the feet. So that's where I'll, I think number one is, um, and then glute mead, 
Uh, number two, I would say VMO being another one, um, which is really hard to target. I think one of the big things about VMO, glutamine's pretty easy to isolate. Right. VMO is difficult, and one of the ways that I do that is in some of your training, which when you're when you're doing it, I think after you kind of burn through the quads, the glutes, and the hamstrings, um, once your lower body begins to really fatigue, is when you can then go in and target the VMOs, and you have to be able to target them through. Uh, high, high reps because you're going with, you know, you're only using your body weight, uh, doing some isolation exercises for the VMO, like, like the step downs that I talked about, which I'll, I'll share a video and I'll share one more other VMO exercise, which is really, really good. Um, you have to go high rep, high volume to be able to target it after you've already fatigued the larger muscle groups, because otherwise they'll overcompensate and take over the load. So, um, that's a big part of that, um, to improve. And is the, is the step down, is that, uh, also called the Peterson step down, or is it technically different the way that you it, do it? It very well could. I, I'd have to look that up. But Got it. Um, yeah, imagine like like kind of a pistol squat on the hang with one foot hanging over the side of a bench, but you're only going down to like a forty five degree angle. Right. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. All right. We'll we'll make sure that is up. So you have ankle flexion, glute med, VMO. Any other uh, usual suspects that you find in that list? Uh, you know, this one's not so much of a, a muscle as much as it, it's just, um, internal rotation of the femur. I think the mm-hmm. big, one of the, uh, the biggest, uh, imbalance, the, one of the biggest things I find with the athletes I work with, number one is that they have minimal internal rotation of the femur, which is very easily, you know, stretched and, and you can, you can find ways to, 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 to kind of create equal external internal rotation of your femur within your pelvis. But I, but most athletes come into me you know, really turned out really lack internal rotation. When you watch a lot of slow motion video, which I do a ton of with the athletes I train, when you, when you're watching an ACL injury happen on the field of play, um, what you see is massive internal rotation of the femur and that's where the rupture occurs. Massive so, internal rotation, internal rotation of the femur. So you see kind of the, 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 the knee cave in going to valgus and then that's where the, the, you know, your, your femur tries to internally rotate. If you have, um, range of motion there. If you, you can internally ro- rotate, you're going to actually avoid an ACL. I have a couple athletes that had took some big hits like Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seahawks this year that played through an MCL injury that hit. He took nine times out of 10 would have been an ACL tear, but based on his ability to internally rotate, um, he was able to avoid that. It was an MCL sprain. He only, he didn't even miss a, a practice actually with it. Um, it was a pretty brutal hit, but that, that was because of all of the work we do. So like, like I always tell people is that I can't eliminate injuries with the athletes I train. But what I can do is bring that probability as low as possible, um, which hopefully keeps them on the field, you know, for long periods of time. And and for, for any given athlete, you know, I mean, the worst thing that possibly happen is, you you know, is get injured. And so um, if you you can lower that probability, I mean, that, that, that's the goal. What is a good way to improve internal rotation of the femur? And this, this is probably also best shown by video, but what would, if you, if you, if it's possible to describe the sort of best bang for the buck that you have found, what is a good way to improve internal rotation of the femur? Sure. There, there's a, there's a fantastic stretch you can do up against a wall that I will show a video of. It's really difficult to explain over, over audio, but I, I will, I promise you I'll post all these videos up so you guys have them um, to see, but there's one you just basically back lying against a wall um, that you can do that, that, that is really helpful. Okay. Cool. So we'll get that in there. And then ankle flexion, possible to also share any best bang for the buck there in terms of improving ankle flexion? This is one I really need personally. Yes. There is a fantastic tool out there called a ProFlex. I have no association with them and they're going to be stoked that I'm saying this, but there's a, it's basically a <laughs> ProFlex, just Pro-flex. Like, like it sounds. 
Yep, it's a DCT ProFlex, and basically it's a board they created, a physical therapist created it. It's a board to, be, to allow you to gain leverage um, with, your, with your calf, and so you put your foot into it. It looks like somewhat of a little boot, um, and you put your, your, your foot into it, and then it allows you to stretch um, your calves in, in multiple ways, whether you know it's, it's your TIB or, or gastroc, but it, but it really focuses and helps you kind of get stretch and, and strengthen through the, through the full range of motion planner and dorsiflexion, um, unlike anything I've tried out there. Um, and cool. it's kind of phenomenal product, uh, honestly, and, and really easy to kind of, um, to, to help you with, with the, that flexion. All right. Proflex first one's free. That's on me. Then you can <laughs> sponsor the next podcast. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, seriously. <laughs> so, uh, this is related to a mutual friend of ours. Uh, told me a story about how you told him Robert Griffin, the third RG3, which I thought was C-3PO or a robot because I don't follow team <laughs> sports, was not going to last very long in the NFL. And you said it very early on in his rookie season. How did, and it seems like that's going to be the case. So how did you know that he wouldn't last or how did you suspect that? So, I mean, you know, when you, when you look at, it's very similar to how a doctor would, would, would look at a patient. If they were really going deep into, into kind of understanding what, what's going on with them, they, they look into past history. So you look into family history, you look kind of into, you know, past 10 years of, of daily, you know, habits, nutrition, uh, exercise, all of those things. And when you look at, at athletes and you, and you get an understanding of in the past what, what they've been exposed to and what they do, you kind of get a, get a clear idea as to what, A, they either need to work on or what they're going to be, you know, at risk of um, moving moving forward. And so uh, one of the big things w- was with RG3 coming out was that he was known as a really fast athlete. He was actually a, an elite level world-class track and field hurdler at Baylor, um, an All-American, actually. And so um, when he came out, one of the things that I noticed quickly was that just based on looking at him just from an eye test, you could see the imbalances between the amount of power he could create, how fast he was. And again, we go back to VMO and glute mead and the type of training he was doing. When you're a linear athlete, like a track and field athlete, running straight ahead for long periods of time, and you, that's all you do and train. And then you transition to a sport like football where you're very, very fast because you're track and field background, but you can transition to football where everything's happening in different planes, um, you know, uh, you're moving sagittal, frontal, and transverse, um, and it's a lot of multiplanar forces that are are put onto the body that you have to train in a very specific way to improve those. And and a big part with what he missed out on was just training in in order to absorb those forces um, in in multiple planes that I knew would cause an ACL injury. And so, um, and then watching his training, he, was, he kind of posted a lot about his training with, with like the heavy, heavy deep squats that he was doing. Um, a lot of that. I mean, ultimately, he was fast enough he didn't really need to train to c- continue to improve his explosiveness. The dude already was a world-class hurdler. Um, he didn't need to improve that. What he needed to improve was his ability to prevent and, and possibly avoid injury. And, and so instantly by just understanding what in, in type of imbalances track and field athletes have, and then transitioning that to what football, what, what, what stresses you're under in football, I could tell pretty quickly that he was at extremely high risk more than any other athlete I've assessed of, of an injury. And, and unfortunately, ultimately it, it kind of panned out that way. Um, but, but yeah, you can, you can kind of get an idea of someone's kind of history and past of, of what, what they do and, and kind of some of their imbalances as to what injuries, injuries they're at high risk for. I have a, an unrelated question and a very related question, but before I forget, I wanted to ask you because I was recently, I've had exposure to hex bars for a long time, starting in college, but I, I was recently gifted my first personal hex bar and I have, I have it in my garage, in my gym, and there are two height settings. I'm sure you've seen this where 
one set of grips, if one side is up, is roughly the, I would say, the same height as the, the rest of the bar, so to speak, including where you're loading the plates. And then there is one that is slightly higher. So my question for you is, when you're doing hex bar deadlifts, how, how many inches off the floor or how high are the grips that you would use for your athletes? So I generally use high handle. High handle. Okay. Yep, high handle. So there's a high handle, low handle. I generally use high handle. And the reason is because of, uh, for predominantly most of the athletes I'm working with are generally over 5'10 to 5'11. Um, and they're anywhere up to 6'7. So I, I'm, I'm usually using high handle just because I don't need to – I don't need to put them in that type of flex. I don't need them to be that deep. Um, and, and they're not that strong at that depth. And, and one of the main, main reasons why is when you look at the athletes on a football field, you rarely ever see them in those positions. So I'm not looking to, to strengthen that range of motion. We will work to improve flexibility and, and strength in different ways, whether it be manually to get them uh, in those full ranges of motion. But when I'm training them neurally, it's more I'm trying to increase the load as high as possible. When you think about the central nervous system, it adapts to stress. So if your if your lower body is capable of pulling from a high handle hex bar deadlift 500 pounds, but in every other exercise that you do, you're only able to get to about 380. Are you actually stressing your nervous system to recruit larger motor units if you're only doing 380 when you're capable of doing over 500? And what I found is the answer is no. And so with the, with the high handle, what you're able to do is increasing increasing um, uh, the degree of your femur and, and the position your pelvis is in and your spine and spine angle and all that is that you're able to go heavier, which allows higher neural adaptation, which you're going to re recruit larger motor units. And so that's what I'm, I'm using the hex bar deadlift, not so much to, you know, increase, you know, hip range of motion or anything like that. What I'm looking to do is stress the nervous system in such a way that it is, has to recruit larger motor units in order to increase strength, increase strength. So that's the goal. And so with the high handle, you can generally go heavier and that's why I use it. Got it. So even for a, uh, a hobbit like me, I'm like <laughs> five, eight, maybe five, nine on a good day. If I'm like trying to put something on Tinder or something, but sure. uh, it, would you say, suggest in that case, I do have kind of Tyrannosaurus arms though. So maybe that means I should also use the high handle. Would you still use that with the uh, shorter athletes, people who are under 5'10", or would you take them to the lower handle? I, I may take you to the lower handle, but, but what I also may do is take you to the lower handle and maybe add like one of those, you know, 10 pound plates underneath it just to give you an extra inch. I don't want you too deep. Yep. Uh, into it like you would see like in a deep squat. I want you to be in somewhat of an athletic like jump position to where if you imagine like looking in the mirror from the side, if you imagine jumping and you, you go to the depth of your jump and that's where you'd feel comfortable, look in the mirror and see where that is and then align the handles to that because that's Got the it. athletic position. That's where I want you to be. That's where you're, that's where you recruit, you're going to recruit the most motor units. And I've, I've done more straight bar deadlift work than I have trap bar. Where should my hands be relative to my feet? In other words, slightly ahead of my feet, uh, directly in line with the side of my ankles. Where do you suggest the uh, the hands be? Yeah. So if you, I mean, the one reason, you know, interesting thing about the the straight bar is that what I found when in testing it is that it, it had a lot more to do with your posterior chain. Um, and and what I love about the hex bar deadlift is that because of the position, the handles on the side of your body, it kind of it's it's more of an anatomically correct position, and it allows your body to kind of recruit more of its, its skeletal muscle to, to help you lift it. And so uh, basically, basically, you want that you, you know, grip the middle of the handles. You see the handles has some knurling on it. You want to kind of grip in the middle, but, but align your hands right next to the outsides of your legs. So they should be pulling you straight up through into your hips. So you, you imagine drawing a straight line from your 
kind of uh, in your in your knee bent knee position from your your ankles, shins to to up to your your hips. That's where you want to be. So it's kind of think more bar path than you do um, kind of you know start position or anything like that. Like without weight, kind of go up and down a few times and kind of see the bar path, and that's where your 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 alignment should be on the ground. Got it. Right. So if you were to extend, if you were to extend your hands in the proper position and do sort of a high bar back squat type of straight down. Uh, squat your your kind of middle fingers would be right at the bony process on the side of your ankles. Yeah, exactly. Got it. So, so that's that's the kind of alignment of the hands. Cool. And last last on the trap bar, how important is it to drop the weights versus lower them very quickly? Uh, and you know, I, and I'm not looking for a particular answer here. The the reason I ask is that I I've seen people drop in quotation marks, and I've done this too. Bar quickly versus drop because it takes them less time to reset and do another repetition. Uh, but that may just be increasing the likelihood of injury with, with doing really rapid eccentrics versus just dropping the weight. Uh, assuming that we can do either where we're training, which is pretty easy these days with the proliferation of CrossFit boxes. Yep. They love dropping shit in CrossFit boxes. <laughs> uh, what would your... What would your thoughts on that be? Yeah, you know, so it, it all depends. I think if the heavier I go with some of the athletes, you know, the biggest limitation is their grip strength. And so a lot of times I'll use wraps um, with them to be, allow them to go heavier, especially with the female athletes I train. Um, uh, when they can get up to the 400 range or high 300s, a lot of times their grip strength just isn't capable of, of, of holding on to the bar. And, and I don't want them to like increase their grip strength because I'm not trying to add lean mass. So the, I add straps. So with straps, I'll generally have them like, you know, drop pretty quickly, keeping their hands on the handle. But for the most part, it's more about, you know, efficiency and energy expenditure. So I, I'm looking at if, if it's going to like require a lot of energy for you to like to, to go down with the bar and drop with it and try to get back in a position quickly. I'm more looking for effort on every single rep concentrically than I am kind of, um, a fast drop. So really ultimately it comes down to you. If you, if you're, if you're good and you're really quick and can get back in a position fast, uh, by keeping your hands on the handle and just dropping with the bar, then I'm fine with that. Uh, I have athletes that do that all the time. I think it's just more than anything. It comes down to kind of comfort level with it. And, um, more than anything, not expending too much energy in the lowering of the bar. Got it. And do you have any preferred straps that you use or is just the old school like, I, I bar- old school cloth yeah. straps? Those are my favorite. Got it. All right. So I promise I would, I would reel us back to <laughs> what we were talking about. And uh, we talked about ACLs. So I recently had my first ACL injury. There may be more to it. I did get MRIs. This was about three months ago. I was hiking in Colorado with a number of guys, very aggressive terrain, 45 degrees up, 45 degrees down, lots of uh, sh- uh, shale and, and so on, and loaded backpacks. And I stepped up onto a log that was about a, a fallen tree that was, uh, I'll say, three feet in diameter, something like that. I stepped up, and as I went to step off with my left leg, my right leg went through the tree and yeah. basically caught right below the knee and I hyperextended the knee. It wasn't catastrophic. I was able to continue to hike, but I had incredible pain for weeks afterwards and had trouble even walking downstairs or walking around. I kind of had to peg leg around. And we're three months out. Uh, I can I can do controlled deadlifts, even up to, I, I haven't gone crazy, but I can get over 300 
without any uh, exhibiting any symptoms of pain, but I do have subpatellar soreness and this lingering concern about ACL. Uh, I have some plans to ski coming up in a few weeks, and I am concerned about it. This is the first time I've had knee issues per se. I've had a lot of quad issues where I've torn my legs apart, but knee, like structural knee issues, this is relatively new for me. So I guess there's, there's a short-term question and a long-term question. Short-term is I don't feel like I have a ton of lateral instability, but I also don't really know what the hell I'm talking about because I've never thought about, I've never worried about it before. So how, how would you assess whether or not I should ski or not ski would be short term. And then longer term is what are some some good ways to minimize, uh, well, actually to rehab an ACL injury? Yeah. So again, I, so I'm not a physical therapist. So, so number one, I don't want to prescribe anything to you to, to, you know, without kind of a f- physical therapist getting oh, their hands sure. on you a little sure. bit. But I do think, I mean, Look, I think physical therapy is, is an amazing field. I think there's a lot lot happening there that I think will become one of the larger kind of more and more performance will be going towards physical therapy than, than it will be going the old school kind of powerlifting route. And so I think, you know, if you can get into a local physical therapist, I think that would be ideal. I think one of the big things is what I find is if it's not a rupture of the ACL, it could be, you know, some sort of a, uh, you know, grade two one or two sprain, uh, sprain of the MCL, which, you know, is, is all kind of worked through by movement and rehab. So I think any type of, you know, non-weighted stability, um, strength you can do of the VMO and the quad would be ideal and also of the glute med. Um, but I would kind of, if best you can get under some professional guidance for that, like at a local physical therapist, if you have one nearby or buddy of yours, that's one. Um, but, but I think a good test would just kind of be, um, lightly, you know, testing it with just some like light hopping or, or some light, like jumping and landing on single, your, your single leg, like forward and back and under feeling if, you know, how much pain you have there, um, for the most part, but, but I definitely just get, get it checked out. I I think that sounds, I mean, hyperextension is difficult because it's again, what, one of the biggest things I'm trying to help the athletes avoid is, is non-contact knee injuries. But when you have something that's like, you know, that shearing force jarring that, that, that femur forward in, in the joint, which is probably what happened when you hyperextended it, um, that's that, those are those are tough. Those are tough to understand. Kind of all the all the different forces that went on to kind of cause that. So I don't know. I mean, but if if you're not in in a, in a if you're feeling pretty decent, you're still able to deadlift. You said, yeah, I'm still able to deadlift. I deadlifted yesterday with like mid huh. mid three hundreds without any pain, but I was doing partial range of movement, pulling basically to just above the knee from the floor. This is straight bar, sure. yep. uh, and dropping uh, because I didn't want to risk. Uh, I, any type of hamstring injury. And if I lift to the top, I'm probably going to be lowering it quickly. I just want to avoid the potential of eccentrically loading my hamstrings in some stupid way. Uh, So I was, uh, yeah, mid 300s pulling to just above the knee and then dropping. And these were relatively, uh, they were low rep range. So two, three reps and then longer rest periods. But yeah, no, no, for all intents and purposes, asymptomatic after that. Like I feel fine today. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, my, my gut's going to tell me you just have a sprain, but I would, I would get checked out. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, question. So we've talked about exercises that are high ROI exercises that can help prevent injury. We talked about the ankle flexion and the proflex. We talked about glute med and the seven way hip VMO and the uh, step downs. 
internal rotation of the femur and the weird, it's not weird, it's just hard to describe an audio, yeah. <laughs> the wall stretch, which we'll get video for. Yeah. If uh, there are people who would argue, I'm not one of them really, but that any exercise done properly can be done safely. That having been said, there are exercises that seem to produce more injuries than others, right? So if if you were talking not about elite athletes, but just uh, aspiring athletes or weekend warriors in general, right? You have a thousand people and you want to decrease injuries as much as possible. What exercises would you, rem- or machines or anything, would you remove from gyms? 100% would be the knee extension machine. Knee extension. 100%. That, that machine is, is the worst for you you could possibly imagine. <laughs> okay good to know yeah it, it, they're they're in every gym and i think it's kind of like it, they have to be but i would never do a knee extension machine ever again got it okay so knee extension out so knee extension is yes. out what any any runner runner uh, runners up um in terms of machines or it doesn't have to be a machine it could be an exercise you some so any any exercise that is uh just not worth the hazard or potential risk of injury. Yeah. You know, I've, I've actually worked with a lot of Olympic committees all over the world. And one of the one things I always do when I'm with them is I, I go and seek out the Olympic lifting coach and kind of just pick his brain and talk him to him. And, you know, kind of across the board, Olympic lifting coaches would tell you to not Olympic lift unless you're an Olympic lifter. And the one reason they would say that is because they take elite level Olympic lifters and take around two years to properly teach them um, the technique in a certain uh, lift, whether it be the clean and jerk or, or clean, you know, whatever, overhead squat, whatever it might be. I think the biggest thing I, I would say in, in terms of uh, that, I, and I train a couple of CrossFitters and I've actually just started doing CrossFit recently just because the, the CrossFitters I started training uh, were giving me so much crap that I've never done it that I was like, fine, I'll give it a shot and I'll, you know, whatever, because I can't, I can't <laughs> talk trash about something unless I do it. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm currently doing that. So I, I actually am enjoying it, but I would say with my background in, in and exercise science and training for so long, I'm, I'm, I'm competent in those, in those lifts that I feel safe. I can, I can do them, but I'm wa- when I'm watching people doing overhead squatting, it just, it kills me. Like it makes <laughs> my eyes bleed. I can't do it. And I, I see so many people who are just uh, waiting for some sort of injury that, uh, that it just kills me. So I would just say, if you're going to get into CrossFit, you're going to get into any type of Olympic lifting, really seek out somebody who's Olympic, you know, lifting certified that can help you, you, you know, USAW certified to help you, um, learn how to do it properly and take your time learning it before you jump into it. There's a lot of variations you can do. Um, that's what I always tell the athletes I work with too. They're like, well, wait, we don't power clean. And I'm like, no, if I can, get, if I can do other exercises, get the same result, but, but, pull back all of the risk of injury. Why, why wouldn't I do that? Like, I'm not trying yeah. to get you, I'm not training you to be a good lifter. I'm training you to be a good football player, basketball player, tennis player. I'm not training you to be a great, you know, lifter. So, so more than anything, it's trying to, trying to eliminate the risk of injury as much as possible. So I would say if you're going to go into Olympic lifting CrossFit, really learn how to do that lift and take your time to, to do it before you jump into the classes and just go for, you know, five rounds of, you know, 20 overhead squats. Um, and then the second would be the knee, you know, knee extension. knee extension machine in the gym is the worst possible machine you can, you can ever do. Besides the trap bar deadlift. And I know we've already mentioned a few, but besides the, the, the hex bar deadlift, if you had to pick one exercise to, or stretch to have everyone do, if you wanted to one shot, one kill, try to decrease injuries across the board. And it, it, 
or as many injuries as possible for, for say, a, a group of a thousand people, what would uh, what would you have them do? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I, I mean, seven way hips, the one you put in tools and tights, I think would be a really, really good one uh, for most people to, to jump in and do. But if we're looking at like not some uh, some exercise I, I you know came up with in my room trying to torture people, I think uh, something that's common, I would say a Bulgarian split squat I really like. Um, I, I also really like box squatting. I think box squat is a great way to kind of teach somebody the proper sequencing and movement um, without you know, putting them at, at risk of, of injury. So, um, I think those two would be good exercises for people to, to, to go start with. Um, and, and let's see massive improvement in what height box would you have someone start with? Uh, generally just, you want to look in the side of the mirror, sit down on a box and, and, and you're looking for a 90 degree angle. I got it. All right. So you're looking for 90 degree angle, meaning quads parallel to the ground effectively. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. All right. Now the so this this is something I'd love to dig into, and uh, this relates to a story of how you helped Meb, and you're going to have to pronounce this guy's last name for me. <laughs> Kafleski. Kafleski. All right. Train for his uh, incredible Boston Marathon victory. So, can you explain for us, maybe tell the story of what inspired you to apply your sprinting insights to a marathoner and how you trained him? Yeah, I mean, just really, really simply. Stride length and frequency is a product of mass-specific force. If you can help someone increase their mass-specific force, naturally those two things are going to occur. When you're a marathon runner, on average, you'll take around 20,000 strides to run a marathon. Well, if I can increase your stride length because of increasing your mass-specific force and your normal running gait by two by three inches, let's say, right? So big increase, three inches on every on, on, in your normal running gait and your stride length. Three inches times 20,000 is 6,000 inches, which is around 5,000 feet, which is close to a mile. So you're a mile ahead of where you were the last time you ran that marathon just purely by increasing your mass-specific force. It's that simple. Got it. And what? Uh, how did your training differ, if at all, for MEB versus your sprinter, I mean, sprinters, meaning track and field or football players fill in the blank. Yeah. So, 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 um, majority of marathoners don't have a, don't have a kind of desire to get in the weight room and strength train. I think a lot of, you know, kind of for a long time thought has been that it can only go to, to hurt you and injure you or, or add size, which is what most marathoners don't want. And so the biggest thing was just teaching, him that by hex bar deadlift, you know, training and just the concentric zone only. So not doing no eccentric loading that he could, again, stress his nervous system, recruit motor units without larger motor units, without adding any, any weight. So he started at 127 pounds, ended at 127 pounds. And, and, um, by just introducing that one exercise, I didn't touch his running. I didn't touch anything else that he did in the weight room. It was just simply that one exercise once a week. Um, it improved his, 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 stride length and his running gait and in turn helped him run faster. Love it. Love the simplicity of it. I mean, yeah, sim- super efficient, sim- right? Simple doesn't mean easy, but no, and I like not, the elegance of the biggest it. Thing, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things I've, I've always kind of really loved about what, you, what you're doing is the same kind of approach I take. And you look at a lot of people that, that, um, they're successful in what they do. I think they take that same approach as you look at patterns or you just look at what you're trying to do is you're just trying to look at the most important things you can ha- actually have control over to improve. Um, that, that has the greatest effect. In the, in the most amount of ways, but with the simplest approaches, just keep it as simple as possible. And I think that really not only helps the, I mean, elite level athletes, but it helps everyday people. I think that's the biggest misconception. I always have people ask me, you know, well, what's, well, they're elite athletes. And, um, you know, when I started working with Nike, you know, well, yeah, but you know, 
take apart what you do with elite level athletes and apply that to, to, to everyday people. And, I'm, and what I always try to say is that there's nothing different. I mean, with the exception of they may be genetically predisposed to have greater talent in catching a ball or throwing a ball fast or running fast or whatever it might be. Um, ultimately, their time in their day is the same as yours. Their, their ability to and the, the, how hard certain workouts are are the same as yours. Um, it's just that you know they're, they're tr- maybe training for just a little bit of a different purpose. So they're still looking for the most bang for their buck and trying to you know keep it as simple as possible, even though they're elite, just like the everyday are. Definitely. Now, what do you, uh, you mentioned Nike, what are you working on at Nike that you can talk about? I know there's sure, some sure. stuff that's probably off the table, but what, no, uh, absolutely. in yeah. general, what, what have you been recruited to do? You know, I think the biggest thing is just, is that the, the, the performance training and fitness field is, it's, it's, it's growing, you know, really quickly. I think, um, people are, are, are really starting to understand how important fitness is for their overall health. And, and so I think what, um, my role at Nike as a senior director of performances is to, is to really help kind of bring, uh, bring in and, and using like the Nike trainer network or the performance council of some of the top minds in the field to help kind of funnel information in and training, um, modalities and ideas and workouts, um, into an app, uh, experience for, for everyone to be able to, to use and, and kind of, um, as a way. So it's a free app called Nike training club, which I'm working on is basically a personal trainer in your pocket. So, uh, our goal is there's different technology we'll be coming out with soon that will be able to give you really in-depth assessment of, um, your, you know, where you're starting from your imbalances, weaknesses, those types of things, and then kind of prescribe a training program using algorithms that will be, um, unique to you and helping you improve whatever you're trying to prove, whether it's weight loss or, you know, strength gain or getting ripped or running a faster, you know, half marathon, or, or if you're a game day athlete at the high school level, trying to make your football team, um, it's going to be, uh, you know, geared and unique for you based on your assessment. So, um, just kind of bringing together the, the best minds in the field that I, that I can bring together and that Nike can bring together to kind of deliver that through uh, digital experiences is, is, is the goal. Cool. Can't wait to check it out. Yeah, uh, we were talking. You mentioned earlier your eyes bleeding yeah. uh, when you watch people doing horrific overhead squat attempts, especially if they're trying to do <laughs> as many reps as possible in a minute or right. after they're already about to puke their brains out or something like that. Uh, which, by the way, people wondering, a lot harder to do a proper overhead squat than you would think. You need, uh, well, most people would need very good ankle flexion, really good thoracic mobility, so that they they're not completely destroying their shoulders. Uh, besides that, what other things, and it could be anything, doesn't have to be exercises, what other stuff drives you crazy when you see it at a gym? Good question. Besides besides guys in like affliction t-shirts doing preacher crawls while they stare into their <laughs> eyes in the mirror. Besides that. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I have a funny story on that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think... I think the biggest, well, what, oh, I hate, I hate people running on treadmills. That's number one. Um, why, why do you hate people running on treadmills? Uh, just, I, I just think it promotes just, just, uh, bad running mechanics. I think it's, it's just some, p- people kind of tend to like r- roll that way when they, there's a street right outside, they can just go run on. Got it. Um, and there's a lot of technology out there that helps them track and I get an idea of exactly what they're doing on a treadmill just on the road. But, um, I think, you know, I don't know. That's tough. I think, I already told you about leg extension machine. That one kills me. Um, what else? Uh, okay. Well, the good. Ex- I can't go to a high school or younger ath- game to watch people run. It, it drives me absolutely crazy. Like I can't watch people run um, that haven't been taught how to run properly, and they're just you know 
doing butt kicks behind them, all backside mechanic that like just watching people not how to run, know how to run properly is my pet peeve. I think <laughs> that, that one, I have a hard, really hard time. Or like when you watch somebody going on a run on the side of the road and like, I really just want to pull over, stop and get out of the car and just work on their mechanics with them <laughs> just for like five minutes. And it will save them so much pain and, and injury that, um, and most of it's just by overstriding. I think biggest, could you biggest explain what you mean by that? Instead, oh, so when you're thinking, about, I talked about earlier, when you think about foot strike, when the, when the foot strikes way out front in front of your pelvis, so when your foot le- on ground, ground contact is out in front of your pelvis from when you're looking at somebody from the side, um, that's that's overstriding. And I think that's the number one cause of injury in static running When you, if you talk to a lot of physical therapists. Um, and so just that alone, if you could help fix overstriding, that would help, help eliminate a ton of injury in static runners. So that's, that's kind of a mission of mine. What are some of the tips that you would give in those five minutes to fix overstriding? Is it more forward lean? Is it... I have no idea. I'm not a runner. Uh, but what would your, I know a lot of people who are certainly, what would some of the recommendations be that you would give that person in, in your five minutes? Once you've convinced them you weren't going to mug them or <laughs> that, that you weren't completely insane. Well, that's the hard part. I think is that it's difficult to do it. I mean, a lot of times I was just telling my NFL combines the other day, they were, they were asking me they're like, what, you know, what you're teaching me, it feels so uncomfortable and awkward. And I was like, exactly. You're slow. So therefore being fast should feel uncomfortable and awkward. <laughs> if we're blazing fast and it feel uncomfortable and awkward, we have a problem because you're not, you're good. I think that's the hard part is that it should, it should feel a little bit awkward and comfortable when you first are doing it right. So it's difficult to do it by on your own without somebody watching you from the side. But generally, it's just the feeling of your, your foot landing almost, almost behind you, like directly under you or behind you. And you'll know most likely it's, it's landing somewhat underneath you. So kind of get that feeling of, of foot placement underneath you or behind you. And I think that'll, that'll help a lot. Just don't reach out in front of you to run. Got it. What, what do you, well, here, I'll give you two questions. You can answer either one. So one is what is something you believe, and it doesn't have to be limited to what we've been talking about, but what is something you believe that other people think is insane or what do you, if you had to pick one thing you believe that a lot of trainers disagree with you on, what would that thing be? It could be either. You know, I think, um, oh, there's, a, there's probably a lot. I mean, I think there's yeah, probably a lot. Of let's get into it. Whatever you want to talk, whatever you can mention. Yeah. You know, I think the number one thing is, is that the, my biggest frustration in the field of, of, of training and human performance is that I think everyone's constantly trying to be the expert and making things so complicated that you have to see, see a trained professional to understand. Yeah. I think my biggest thing is that it, it's not that difficult. It, it's very simple. And I think the more, the more, the simpler we can make it, the better it is for everybody. Um, including the one, those teaching it. Um, I think we try to get so complicated, uh, and, 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 you know, kind of put our own spin into making it, uh, we're the expert in certain things that, that it, it just becomes kind of, um, undigestible for, for, for most people. So I think my biggest thing is just make it as simple as you possibly can, whether you're working with elite level athletes or you're working with, you know, um, you know, sedentary adults, I, it doesn't matter. It's just, just make it as simple as possible because ultimately you can only improve so many things at once. Just focus on, on whatever you get the most bang for your buck out of it. And I think start there and, and you can start to add things on. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest thing I think, uh, you know, for me, I, th- I think it's just, it's just keeping it as simple as possible. And I think we, we try to make it way a lot more difficult. I think people always say, well, you know, how, how, how do you, how can you just predict, you know, someone's speed based on just expert deadlift and body weight? Well, you know, there's an algorithm that goes into it and there's been eight years of data collected on, you know, thousands of athletes that, that, that helped me drive to that. It's not just, 
oh, just do this and that. And it's, and it's, it, you know, there's a lot that goes to it, but, but by me just keeping it really simple by just saying, just increase your, your strength without increasing your lean muscle mass, and you, you'll improve your speed. It, it's, I think it's more helping more people than it, than it is kind of, um, I can't sell that. So it's not that I'm trying to sell anything. It's more than anything. It's just trying to keep it as simple as possible. So people's kind of remove the riffraff from, from, uh, you know, their daily thing. I, I don't know if you saw the story, but there's a story today, uh, in, the, um, on ESPN about the university of Oregon. And there was three players from the university of Oregon's football team that were hospitalized due to rhabdo, which Jeez. so that's rhabdomyolysis. You want to describe what, what rhabdo is for people who don't know? Yeah, sure. It's basically caused by super intense workouts, overtraining to the point where muscle tissue breaks down, gets in the bloodstream and releases toxins and can actually lead to kidney failure. It's something you ha- we haven't seen in, and I'm not kidding. I think like 80 years. Uh, yeah, there's a few except, except for that, CrossFit gyms yeah, when they do CrossFit gyms that, that occurs <laughs> here and there. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so there was the three players that were hospitalized and, and, and basically the coach that was training them was trying to break them down basically. And, um, you know, d- doing certain exercises that, that just really at the end of the day, he was just trying to break them mentally. And it was really for n- no reason other than that. There's no sports performance, you know, aspect behind it. Um, but a lot of a lot of coaches out there. When I talk to a lot of high school, you know, strength coaches or a lot of college strength coaches, when I go around speaking to, in different places, it's just that I think we, we get so caught up in kind of what we used to do, right? That we we miss out on ultimately what's best for the people we're working with and how can we be on the you know front edges of that of improving it. I just I'm not comfortable sitting here today saying I accept where we are and as as far as we've come in training that I'm willing to sit on my laurels just just use what we have currently I, I want to push the limits I, I think we're on the we, we barely even scratched the surface on human on human potential and I think a lot of that has to do with just regurgitated information and 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 not people looking and seeking out better ways to do something and I think that's my biggest thing is it's not so much that I I never speak in absolutes I don't think we're ever we've ever reached a finish line especially in this field I think it's always you've got to always kind of focus on this is what I'm currently doing today I hope in two years I have a better way to train athletes than just the X bar deadlift I I really truly do I hope the force number is obsolete in two years because I hope we've moved on to something that is better and more and safer and 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 more people can do it to help them improve their performance. And then all, at the end of the day, my goal would be is if you can, if you can even the playing field of genetics and talent, and you can actually teach people how to be faster, then it's just going to come down to who works the hardest is going to win. And I think that's what my goal is ultimately is not to, is to remove the veil of kind of mystery of what makes somebody elite and show, okay, here's, here's, here's what you need to do. If you could do these three things, do this over long periods of time. And it's just, who's going to put in the most work is going to reach that goal. And I think more and more, you know, in other fields, we're seeing that, um, but I think in my goal with training is just to kind of continue to push the envelope and not accept kind of what is and, and kind of keep pushing forward. Which, which trainers or books have most influenced or impressed you? And the reason I ask, I have, I have uh, Charlie Francis's book on speed. Oh, Charlie. Uh, it was amazing. And some of you yeah. may recognize that name because he was the trader of Ben Johnson. Now, at that level, you don't have to comment. But <laughs> I will say with a fair degree of certainty, not the only guy doping in that race. Oh, my God. No. I mean, I think we've already <laughs> gone back. Haven't they already gone back and seen that like eight of the or seven of the eight people in that race were doping at some oh, point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, mean, I, so I think that's the hard part with Charlie is that. It, people miss out on the genius purely based on kind of the story with Ben and, and people thinking he's, he's yeah. a bad guy because he did, but when it was just the name of the game, I mean, I tell people all the time, if you're sitting in a major league baseball locker room in the late eighties, early nineties, and you're looking around and you hit 20 home runs the year before, and the guy next to you hit 12 and the following year, he hits 40 and you're still hitting 20. 
at some point you're going to go, you know what, I got to get on what everybody else is getting on. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to play very much longer. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of almost, it's, 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 they're the product of the culture. It's not so much an isolated instant as much as people think it is. Yep. So yeah, outside of that, no, Charlie Francis absolutely was a huge, massive influence on me. Um, another, uh, three-time Olympian, uh, hurdler, a guy by the name of Tony Campbell, who, who became a, who, who's still a track and field coach, uh, was a huge influence on me. Dan Paff is, is, is one of the, I think, brilliant minds of, of not just track and field, but training period. He runs Altus down to Phoenix, which is one of the, the, the largest, um, kind of attended track and field centers in the world. Altus, A-L-T-U-S. Yeah. A-L-T-U-S. Um, and Dan Paff, it's P-F-A-F-F. Um, brilliant guy, uh, and mind. Um, but you know, I, I study everybody, Tim, honestly, I, I mean, I've, I've got from, you know, Louis Simmons to Charles sure. and to all of them. I mean, for me, it's kind of like success leaves clues. And I think you've got to kind of study the best that, that have done it prior to you and see what, see where we're at and then see what we can kind of, um, add on to, you know, Buddy Morris, who's a strength coach of the Arizona Cardinals, a really good friend of mine, you know, phenomenal coach. He he's, you know, um, been in the game for a very long time is in his sixties was kind of a Louis Westside barbell guy, but, uh, has kind of adjusted to, to really evolve. And he's doing some phenomenal things with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a ton of coaches that I, 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 you know, you know, respect incredibly. I think, I think it's, it's been awesome. I think more than anything, we, we, as a field of performance coaches have to kind of, and what my goal is with Nike is try to bring us together to kind of get, you know, bring all that information together, try to kind of come with some best practices and try to help move this field forward. Mm -hmm. What is there anything in particular from, uh, Louis Simmons for you people who don't know who Louis Simmons is, you gotta look this guy up oh, he's awesome. and I'm not going to say too much more. He's very well-spoken, very smart. A, check out his tattoos. A, read what he has to say about <laughs> anabolic steroids. And then look at the athletes who have come out of his gym in the last 20 years and just prepare to have your mind blown. Yeah, if you've, if you've ever seen people using chains or bands, uh, chances are they, they borrowed it from Louis Simmons. Or if they, uh, uh, But is there anything in particular that you have uh, borrowed or adapted from Louis that comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely. When I uh, went to meet with him, you know, one of the big things he was talking to me about is that with all, and this was just recently, but all of his world record and, 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 you know, world-class squatters that he has, he, he box squats, all of them to improve their squat. So as basic of a lift as box squat is, he uses that to help them improve their deep squat, uh, in their powerlifting, uh, competition. So that was one thing I started implementing more and more with a lot of my jumpers. A lot of my football players is, is using more box squat than, than, um, than, than deep squat or, or any type of variation of squat. I, I use the box squat a ton, not only as a teaching tool, but just to help them improve their other exercises with min minimizing the risk of injury and training. Question on box squat, just a technical yeah. nuance. Are you with your athletes when they box squat, how much of your weight, how much of their weight do you have them transfer from their feet to their ass on the box uh, if at all, or is it just making contact and then reversing the movement? It just depends on the weight I'm using. Um, and also kind of what, what I'm going for. If I'm using, if I'm using it like to, to do tempo. So if I'm doing like four seconds down controlled tempo, I may have them, um, just touch and go, or I may have them. It just depends on what I'm, where I'm at in, in the phase of training or if what I'm trying to do to teach. Sometimes I'll, a lot of times with, with newer athletes to box squatting, I'll, I'll actually have them sit completely down on the bench or on the, on the, I'm sorry, on the box. Um, kind of sit upright so their spine angle is, is is perpendicular to the ground and then and then lean back forward and stand back up just to kind of get the understanding of the sequencing of the movement that I want. Um, 
from what I understand, that's what Louis does as well, is he actually has them sit completely down on the box. Um, and so um I, I kind of do a combination of the two. It just kind of bends on the form, the 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 um, kind of phase of the training I'm in. But for the most part, uh, listeners, I would say I'd probably sit all the way down in the box and then you know tilt your spine and go back forward and stand back up. When you're when you're working with elite football players or sprinters, certainly, I would imagine they're already they they already tend to be very low body fat there there are probably exceptions depending on oh the, you'd be surprised yeah there are probably exceptions depending on the position but if we're talking about the uh, not ground reactive force exactly but the the amount of weight they can lift relative to their body weight are there cases where you focus simultaneously or not on dropping as much body fat as possible since that would ostensibly contribute to their ability to run faster, right? I mean, you're just tweaking a, a different variable. No, 100%. Yeah. I have a good example of that, actually. A couple of years ago, I had two quarterbacks uh, in the in going coming into the NFL draft, uh, Marcus Mariota and Jameis Winston. And, and one came in at 207 pounds and needed to be 225. The other one came in at 260 and needed to be 230. So I actually had one needing to gain 20 and the other one needing to lose 30 and, and had them at the exact same time. And so, um, yeah, this, this ultimately can work for either. What did you do in both of those cases? I know you could probably talk for hours about it, but if you had to do your best to summarize what worked best for those two guys, one trying to cut a fair amount of body fat and then the other trying to gain mass, what, what were the keys in those two cases? No, I mean, uh, yeah, ultimately it comes down to, I mean, as you know, nutrition plays a massive role in it. And and so blood testing, I mean, I, I do a lot of blood test work with, with the guys. And so, as you know, with, you know, high levels of, of insulin and glucose is really difficult to lose body fat. So understanding their diet from that perspective of trying to, to lower the, those markers as much as possible, eliminating sugar and those types of things that have them lose body fat is, is crucial. Um, but at the end of the day, that's, that's the really cool part about a lot of this training is that a lot of it is going to uh, get you to some sort of level of homeostasis. Your, your body's going to try to get to its natural, uh, state, a, a somewhat of a zero, uh, based on all of this training. So whether you need to lose weight or you need to put on muscle, your body's going to, to, to adapt and do what it needs to do in order to increase its strength, especially when it's being stressed at certain levels with the hex bar deadlift. So with a guy like Marcus who needed to gain 20 pounds, I, I added a lot more eccentric loading in, into his training programming. So he'd do a lot more tempo, time under tension, and, and focus on the eccentric phase of some of the exercises as as well as uh, the concentric. So in the hex bar deadlift, for example, I'd have him go up and down because um, we're looking for more like cross-sectional muscle fiber. And then and then with Jameis, it was it was a lot of concentric only, eliminating eccentric focus from his his training um, and then just upping the intensity and also his cardio. So just giving him some some more uh, cardio throughout the day. And for him, a big part was just diet. I mean, a lot of these kids coming out of college, a lot of, a lot of people don't realize is that they have no idea how to eat right or oh, what yeah. is, what is eating right. They've gotten away so much on talent up to that point that all of a sudden it comes to the point where, Oh wait, I got to really focus on what I have to eat now. You know? So it's like, yeah, no McDonald's and KFC is not, not good for you. Uh, which people, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be amazed at how much they don't understand that. But I, you know, just helping him with his diet was a big part. So ultimately the training doesn't need to change as much as it's like when you want, look at CrossFit, for example, it's a great example. You'll see some people in the gym over 60 days that will put on tons of muscle mass and, and, you know, and get bit stronger and bigger. And you'll look at the other side of the room and someone will lose 105 pounds. And it's like, 
how, you know, how did them in the same workout, same program over the past six days get totally different opposite um, results? And, and ultimately, it's just because the body's trying to find that 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 zero that homeostasis. And so, it's whether it's burning, you know, fat cells or or, or increasingly muscle mass, it's going to do whatever you know the stress is is asking it to do. Right. What's uh, just a just a couple more questions, and I'll uh, let you get back to your night. But the uh, first question that I always ask is, what books have you gifted the most to other people? And these don't have to be sports related, but they could be. Um, are there are there any particular books that you've gifted to oh, other man. people? Good question. I've heard you ask this before, and I didn't think you were going to ask me, and I should have been prepared for this. But I, I'm a huge, <laughs> huge avid reader. Um, I mean, I truly believe I tell every person I train is that I think a big, one of the biggest reasons you are where you are, the difference between where you are, where you are, and where, where you want to go is, is kind of knowledge, I, big and in, in reading as much as you can. And so that's a tough question. I think The Alchemist is a big one. I've, I've loved that book for a very, very long time. Um, the Bible mm-hmm. is a big one. Um, but I'll give you a kind of an off, off, off the wall kind of one, which is called the slide edge. Have you ever heard of that book? The slide edge. The slight edge. Oh, slight edge. No, I yeah. haven't. So basically the premise of the book is, is and, I, and I give it to as many athletes as I possibly can. Um, it, the, it, it's basic. The premise is what you, the small little tiny things you do, the daily habits you do every single day can lead to, to exponential kind of life improvement down the road. So it's basically talks about forming habits before they form you and, and what types of habits you want to form. So whether it's things like you talk about all the time, which is journaling, uh, nutrition, um, you know, relationally, like all those things that you, that, that, that will help you lead a greater, fuller, happier life, kind of making sure that you do those, those things and you do them religiously every single day. And over the course of time, like compounding interest, it'll add up to something you know, great at, you know, down the road. And, um, it's all about just kind of forming those habits. And I, and I, that's something I work with, you know, my athletes on all the time, because ultimately they've all gotten to where they are, but what, what separates the great ones, the, the all time athletes and, and people from, from kind of the, you know, the good is I think those kind of this, you know, discipline daily habits that they do every single day that, that kind of, you know, make them who they am, they are. And, and that's what separates them from everybody else. They know who they are. Um, they know that they can only do a few things really, really well. And they focus on those things and, and without fail, they do them every single day. You know, this, I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember the name, but a, I love the title. B, it reminds me of this anecdote or a story I heard about one of the most famous basketball coaches of the last century, certainly. And I'm blanking on the John name. Wooden. Yes, John Wooden. And this may or may not be true. I think it is that he would sit his players down at the beginning of a season, have them take off their shoes, and then have them lace their shoes back on according to his instructions. And the point of the exercise, because people are like, why the hell are we doing this? This is ridiculous. Why do I need to change how I lace my shoes? And he said, improperly uh, fitted shoes cause blisters. Blisters cost points and points cost games. And the moral of the story being that it's the little things done consistently that make a huge difference. That's that awesome. you have to pay attention to the details. So I love that the slide. Yeah, edge. yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, slide edge, and it's it, it's a redundant book. It just go, it, you know, kind of covers the same things over and over again. Um, but it's just it's it's kind of you know, there's all those self help books out there that kind of give you like breakthroughs in certain things. This this one is is awesome because it kind of gives you the, the before all of that happens, you've got to be able to do these things really well. Um, and it talks about like four or five things that you do daily that that just will add up at, at some point. They're, they're good habits that will that will pay off. You know, you know, exponentially in, in the end. I love it. What advice would you give your 
30-year-old self? And if you could just place us, where are you? How old are you right now? I'm 34. Okay, forget about that question. <laughs> 20 year old well, well, yeah, let's say you're 20 or 25-year-old self, whichever one needs the advice the most. And if you could just try to place us where you are and what you're doing, 20 or 25. Man, I think, I think the biggest thing would be to... I'll tell you a funny story. My, so when I first started doing this, my, my dad would always tell people that, that I was a, I mean, I still, when I first started this, I started to figure out what I want to do in training. I mean, I even started out where I was like at a 24 hour fitness because I just wanted to get an idea of like what I wanted to do. And to this day, my dad still tells everybody I'm a personal trainer. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny um, for multiple reasons, but I think it's, a, it's, it's, but I, I think more than anything, it's, it's, it's that whatever, whatever you're going to do, be, be the absolute best at it. And I think ultimately it always works out in the end. And, and I would have never thought a million years when I was younger that like, you know, I thought I was kind of with not being an athlete and not being kind of, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, but not, but not, not having none of those things really work out for me. I would have never guessed that I would reach the level of success, success that I have today based on um, what I was doing. But I took so much pride in, and, and um, put so much effort into like helping every single person that I came across to improve, um, that ultimately it kind of started to, to add up. And I think I just wanted to be the best, absolute best that I could be. Um, are you familiar with the author of C.S. Lewis? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. He yes. Talks about Definitely. With, Screw tape letters. Has yeah. Some, yeah. Yeah. Some great, so some one of the big books. things he talks about is, is what's called the inner circle. I think when I was talking to the athletes I'm, I work with, I'm always talking about, you know, you're all, they're always striving to be within that inner circle, whether they see people like Jay-Z or Beyonce or, you know, big time athletes that they like, you know, uh, Tom Brady or whoever, they, they want to be in that circle with those athletes because they see them, they're all hanging out, running around. But ultimately, those people in, the, in that inner circle, they don't even know they're in that inner circle. The, the reason they're in that inner circle is because other people that were am amazingly great at what they did recognize their greatness and what they did. And that's why it's the inner circle is a lot of times made up of photographers or actors or um, musicians or athletes or all these different types of people because ultimately they're the best at what they do and other greatness recognizes greatness. So instead of focusing on getting into the inner circle, focus on being great at whatever you're doing. And I promise you at the end of the day, you're going to look up and you'll be in the inner circle. And I think that's that's for me telling my younger self that is that just – just be great at what you're doing and, and ultimately you'll be recognized for that. Not, not trying to, you know, get into the inner circle in any other way, I guess, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Uh, well, Ryan, this has been awesome. This is, uh, I'm really glad we connected and had a chance to chat. I'm sure we will have a million follow-up questions from listeners Yeah, <laughs> and uh, plenty of room for a round two. So whether it's in, Oregon or in San Diego or somewhere else would be fun to to grab a bite to eat and do some deadlifts. Uh, but yeah, uh, where where can people find you uh, if there's a preferred place on social media you'd like people to say hello uh, or anything else you'd like to mention? Where where can people uh, find you and more about your work? Yeah, sure. So I mean, um, I'm so working at Nike now, so it's a little bit different. But I, I mean, on I'm on Instagram, uh, Ryan Flaherty one at Ryan Flaherty and the number one. Um, and then, uh, by email, just Ryan at prolificathletes.com is my personal email. So you can send email questions there if you, if you guys would want, um, and I'd be happy to get back to you as soon as I can. Um, I think those are probably the, the, the two probably best places to find me. Prolificathletes.com is still up, but, but, uh, because I'm at Nike now, no longer really kind of operating that website anymore. So I, I would just focus on sending the email or, or the, in, or Instagram. Got it. 
All right. Well, you may be getting a lot of email, sir. <laughs> so hopefully you have an autoresponder that helps you to ignore anything you really don't want to answer. But uh, once again, man, thanks for, for taking the time. This has given me a bunch of homework and things to look into. And uh, to people listening, uh, as always, we will have show notes, links to resources, including the exercises that we discussed, whether it's uh, glute med, VMO, step downs, internal rotation of the femur, etc. We will have these available and uh, we will figure out the best links for those and put them in the show notes. And you can find those show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Or if that's too hard to spell, you can just go to tim.blog forward slash podcast and it'll have the show notes for this episode and every other episode. Uh, Ryan, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure, Tim. Thanks so much. And uh, to everybody listening, as always, thank you for tuning in. And uh, more episodes coming soon. Hey, guys. This is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by LegalZoom. I have used LegalZoom myself for many of my businesses, and many of the icons on this podcast have actually used LegalZoom. For instance, Matt Mullenweg of WordPress fame, CEO of Automatic, which is now worth more than a billion dollars, first incorporated his company on LegalZoom. LegalZoom is a reliable resource that more than a million people have already trusted to help with their businesses. Whether that's setting up a will, doing a proper trademark search, forming an LLC, setting up a nonprofit, or finding simple cease and desist letter templates. Man, do I use a lot of those. Uh, LegalZoom is not a law firm, but they do have a network of independent attorneys available in most states. They can give you advice on the best way to get started, provide contract reviews, and otherwise help you run your business. And important, there are no surprises. LegalZoom provides complete transparency. That means upfront pricing, customer reviews, and a satisfaction guarantee. Check out LegalZoom.com today to see how they can make life better and easier for you and your business. If you're pretending to be a lawyer on the internet, then you are asking for trouble. Put together the safety nets, get your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Enter promo code TIM, T-I-M, at LegalZoom.com to save 15%. That's T-I-M for 15% off. Check it out, LegalZoom.com. This episode is brought to you by Soothe.com, the world's largest on-demand massage service. What? And let me tell you, I have a high bar for this stuff. I have body work done at least once a week because I've broken my body. I have 30 plus fractures and 100 plus MRIs. I need body work. So I have a very, very, very high bar for that. Soothe, which I've tested, 
I tested, my assistants tested, my employees tested, delivers a hand-selected, licensed, and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. I've tested them in San Francisco, I've tested them in Austin, I've tested them all over the place, and I have to say, I was really, really amazed at the quality of therapist, and I do not accept mediocrity at all in this area. The process is super simple. Think of it as Uber for massages, right? You choose the kind of massage you want, say Swedish or sports massage, deep tissue, whatever. Then uh, if you want, you can opt for a couple's massage. I imagine that's an edge case, as the tech people say, but whatever. You set the length of your massage, so you, let's say you want 60 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours, and let's be real. If you want a proper massage, go for 90 or 120 minutes, for God's sake, and you select the gender of your therapist, and then click. You're off to the races. And they bring the massage table, sheets, oil, music, so you can unwind no matter where you are. And I have used this at Airbnbs, hotels, etc. Soothe is in 50 cities, including most major US cities, as well as London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, and Vancouver. So, number one, download the app Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store, and then use the, t- the code, let me try that again, use the code TITAN20. T-I-T-A-N-2-0, TITAN20, all caps, to get $20 off of your first massage. That's a lot. That's a very good discount, so you should use it. So, again, download the app, Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, and try out the code TITAN20, all caps, for $20, not percent, $20 off your first massage. And if you're anything like me, I have been paying and I've been enjoying. So give it a shot. Try out Soothe and your muscles, nervous system, and sleep will thank you for it. What the fuck kind of read was that? It was pretty good. That's what I think. Okay. Enjoy. Bye.